Well, today we are continuing in our um, study of Genesis, if you remember, right? And pretty soon there's going to be this, like I, was, I called it an eclipse. Pretty soon, it's like in a few weeks, where where we're at in Genesis will equal where we are in the Torah portions. It's only, uh, only a matter of a few weeks. How exciting is that? All right. So, but we are, uh, of course, today is Breshit, uh, and uh, Peter will be leading the Torah study today and be talking uh, uh, about that. A lot of, there's also, but there's a lot of material. The, you may be wondering, Marcy didn't, did not read from the beginning, right? Uh, it was in the second chapter, but the first Torah portion goes all the way through chapter five. So there's a lot to choose from in uh, the first week. It's not just uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes all the way to Noah. You know, you have Cain and Abel and, you know, all that. Seth coming, you know, being born and that genealogy. A lot of things. And, of course, uh, we have been talking about that uh, earlier this year. But now we are, we are in chapter 12 of uh, Breshit, Genesis. And we spoke for several weeks about the call of Abraham and what and you know the, the issue of blessing in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and what that means. But now we um, we are moving forward to the second half of chapter 12. And this is a rather interesting little section here. It begins in verse 10. And so this is sort of like, you know, and after the great blessing, and after uh, uh, Abram made his way to uh, uh, Canaan, the land of Canaan, uh, and after he uh, 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 worshipped the Lord, as it says in verse 8, after he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord, it says, Abram journeyed on continuing toward the Negev. Which basically just means he kept going south. Uh, um, but now, beginning in verse 10, we see the first challenge that, uh, that Abraham faces. The first challenge he faces after God makes this great promise to him. Okay, uh, Verses 10 to 20. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now I know that you are a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife. So they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officers saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and uh, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. 
Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now, that's not really the end. The end needs to be, they needed to start, whoever decided on where verse 13, chapter 13 begins was in the wrong place. Okay? So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed, uh, and he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place at the altar which he had made there formerly. Uh, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I would suggest that uh, when it says in verse um, uh, 8, Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then you go down to chapter 13 and verse uh, 4, right? Where Abram goes to the place of the altar which he had made formerly, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now that tells us that in between where Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord and Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord, that's a particular story, we'll just call it. A particular section, right? And so, we, so those are always important things to look for, by the way, when you're reading the Bible. Just important things to look for, okay? And uh, that's why, really, ver uh, chapter 13 should start in verse 5. <laughs> Where it? But I have no idea who to argue with about that. All right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so Abram now, he has this promise from God, Right? Uh, and uh, what we know, remember that at the, remember at the beginning of this, we don't know, we never know why God called him. Like it doesn't say he was more righteous than all the people around. It doesn't say uh, what, what a godly man he was, you know, like, like other, uh, other uh, figures in the scriptures. And as we have talked about, that there are, that there are many, many legends, stories, midrash, about Abraham and about his young life and to give a reason uh, why uh, God called him. But we don't know. What we do know is, is that he listens to the voice of the Lord and that he leaves Haran and he goes down to, uh, to Canaan. He does follow the Lord. He's obedient. He follows the Lord. And uh, God gives him these great promises, right? Promises that have to do with the far distant future, have to do with his own life, has to do with the blessings of the nations. The whole, the whole future of humanity is bound up in the promises, the promises in verses 1 to 3. Okay? So now Abram is in the land. He receives the promises. He's called upon the name of the Lord. Now what? Okay. We see a challenge in his life. There's a famine in the land, and they can't stay there. And notice that it says... In verse 10, it says it twice. There was a famine in the land, and then it says, after they go down to Egypt, for the famine was severe in the land. Okay, so we're to, we're to understand that it was really bad and that uh, they needed to go down to Egypt. Now, right away, that reminds us, and we'll see that this whole story will remind us of uh, the future of uh, the uh, Israelites, uh, the sons of Jacob, right? There's a famine in the land. They end up in Egypt, right? Uh, and over a long period of time, they become slaves. Plagues come upon Egypt, 
and they leave in a hurry. It kind of reminds you of this, you know, uh, of this uh, of this passage: famine, sojourn, captivity, and return. <laughs> sort of a fourfold uh, metaphor or picture of God's deliverance. Okay, so I so there's a famine in the land, and it's severe. So now here they come near to Egypt, and uh, Abram says to Sarah, his wife, I know you're a beautiful woman, and it will come about, what's going to happen is, is that the Egyptians, I, they'll, they'll know you're my wife, they're going to kill me, and then they'll put you in the harem, okay? So say you're my sister. Okay? Now there's, some, there's more to that than meets the eye. I, so he says, this is my wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Okay. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. I would suggest that Abram uh, is here thinking that it'll be best for the both of us if, if you say you're my sister. Now, it's true. They are half, uh, she is his half sister. But there's something else about that word that, you know, it, uh, it means more than sibling in the ancient, uh, you know, in the ancient, uh, in the ancient world. It could also refer to one who is like a guardian, like, a, you know, a brother and a sister, one is where, where one is a guardian. I, uh, but whatever the case may be, whatever the case may be, Abraham is trying to figure out how this can go well for us. Now, I would also suggest that it's not just simply so that I can live and see another day, but Abraham has on his mind, as, as we will see in weeks to come, for a number of weeks to come, Abraham has on his mind that there's going to be descendants. There's going to be children. God has made this promise, and a good portion of this promise includes children from, that, that comes from Abraham. Uh, and uh, and Sarah. Now I don't. We don't know how much he he understands and knows, uh, but we do know that he's received this. Uh, he's received this promise. Now, on the other hand, it could be that he uh, is simply trying to figure out a way to live. You know, uh, a way uh, a way to live. So he comes up. He devises a plan. So as Abram thought is what happens the Egypt in verse 14 and it came about when Abram came into Egypt the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful it was very beautiful just like Abram saw, thought they would say Abram's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house all right so therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. So, you know, that's very interesting that he gives Abram all these things. So perhaps there was this, uh, that in taking Sarah, that Abram was recognized not just as we're, we're a brother and sister going somewhere, but that he is the guardian of, of Sarah. And, that, uh, and this was all given to him in exchange for uh, Sarah. And the fact that it includes camels is pretty interesting because you don't read uh, uh, a lot about these, uh, the, you know, the Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob traveling with camels. 
that was, uh, you know, um, uh, very, very uh, unique and special, traveling with camels. All right, so now we read, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was, uh, that she was your wife? Okay, so we see here that um, uh, Sarah goes into Pharaoh's house. Uh, plagues come upon Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh discerns that this is happening, that Abram has orchestrated this somehow. Somehow this has something to do with him taking Abram's sister, right? How does he know? He says, what is this you have done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Maybe Sarah told him. We don't know. But somehow he understands, Pharaoh understands this. Now, perhaps God just spoke into the heart of Pharaoh. He can do that, you know, uh, and protected uh, Sarah, uh, protected her from Pharaoh so that she would be able to be reunited with Abraham. Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Okay. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. All right. So Abram now uh, and Sarah leave. They have uh, now a lot of wealth that comes from Egypt, right? Uh, and uh, we read about it. Gold, silver, livestock, right? Uh, and now he uh, uh, travels uh, uh, from the Negev as far as Bethel, where he had been before. Uh, and here he once again calls upon the name of the Lord. All right. So this is a, uh, this is a very interesting um, little story. We might ask ourselves first, why is it even here? Why do we need this story? There's nothing in the text of the Bible that is like thrown in or, you know, that doesn't mean anything. And the fact is, is that this story does not actually even need to be here. If this was not here, we could simply begin, you know, with, uh, if you, interesting, if you go up to verse 8, where it says, and Abram called upon the name of the Lord, you could simply continue with verse 5 of chapter 13. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents and so on and so forth. So we have this story here, and we need to ask ourselves, why is it here? Why is it here? I would suggest that the reason that it's here is to show us uh, Abraham's track of discipleship first. That uh, Abram is new to this whole thing of trusting God, new to this concept of, uh, you know, uh, God's protection and God's benevolence. He did uh, follow the Lord. He did listen to the voice of God and, and came down to Canaan. But then there's this famine and he has to figure out what to do. And so he goes down uh, to Egypt because that is indeed the logical thing to do. He goes to Egypt, right? And then he's concerned about his life and Sarah's life. And he comes up with a plan that he thinks will work to keep them both alive. And at least until this famine is over, evidently, and then 
and then return back. But the plan actually backfires. The plan backfires. Pharaoh takes Sarah for his own, uh, for his own wife. And now, uh, and Abraham does become wealthy, but God must come to the rescue to get Sarah. So we see first that Abram is, uh, you know, not, uh, well, I guess we'll say it positively. A- Abram is trying to do the right thing, trying to figure out the right thing to do. But God must come to the rescue. God must come to the rescue. And that is the other reason, or maybe even the most primary reason, why this little story is here, is to show us that Abram, who is a fallible human being, is trying to figure out, using all that wisdom under the sun, using conventional wisdom to try to figure out a situation, but that God must come to the rescue. God must protect the covenant. Uh, that God is faithful. Even, even where Abraham messed up, even, even you know, whether you could argue, was he, should he have gone down to Egypt or should he not have gone down to Egypt? Uh, uh, what, was, what should he have done? Uh, if, uh, you know, actually, what, you know, what Abraham says actually comes to pass in that they're going to see that you're beautiful and they're going to ta- want to take you, all right? Uh, uh, but I would suggest that I'm not so sure that Abraham was good with uh, Sarah becoming the wife of Pharaoh. I'm not so sure he had that in mind, okay? But that's what happened. It blows up. It blows up in his face. And God must come to the rescue. God is faithful. What Abram learns here, begins to learn here, is about the faithfulness of God. And as we read through chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, all the way up to 22, the the high point is in chapter 22, we see that Abraham is growing in his faith. He still has a hard time understanding what God is going to do. If you turn just for a second over to chapter 15, look what, look what uh, we read at the very beginning of the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abraham. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord, what will thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? He thinks that his servant of Damascus, this Syrian person will, will be the descendant because he has no descendants. So Abram, notice here again, isn't it interesting? He's trying to figure it out that, okay, God has promised me descendants. So, okay, I got it. Okay, it'll be Eliezer, my Syrian servant, right? He'll be my descendant, right? I, uh, by adoption, like, right? That makes sense, right? See, And so what's happening in these chapters in Genesis is that Abraham is learning about the faithfulness of God. And it's all going to lead up to him being able to do the most unbelievable thing, and that is follow God when it doesn't even seem to make sense, and that is bringing his son up Mount Moriah, the son that he's wondering about, the son that he is obsessed about, and the son that God gives him. It was the covenant son from Sarah, You know, in her old age, he's learning all along the way. He's growing in his faithfulness. God is training Abram uh, in his faithfulness. And so uh, what we learn in this passage is something that we will see over and over again, and that is 
the faithfulness of God and that God saves the day. That is, when, when we read through the book of Genesis, continuously, God saves the day. He saves the day with Abram. He saves the day with Isaac, with Jacob, uh, on more than one occasion, right? And then also, uh, when, then when we come to the Joseph story, wow, you know, God is at work saving the day once again. He saves Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt. And, and uh, perhaps you know the rest of the story, and we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, and so God is faithful. That is perhaps the, the main lesson here that we learn. Also, there's other uh, things going on here. One is, and, and I think this is really interesting, is that right after we read about how you'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth, Abram has an interaction with a, with a nation. He has an interaction with uh, Egypt, right? And uh, it's, it's rather interesting in that uh, Egypt blesses him. Uh, e this is very interesting. Abram doesn't really bless Egypt, but Egypt blesses him uh, with riches of all kinds. He, he becomes a wealthy man in Egypt. And in the book of Genesis, Egypt is like a benefactor to, uh, to Israel, in, just in, in Genesis, right? Uh, the nation is, the nation is uh, saved uh, from the famine in the Joseph story. And in here, one of the things that is unsaid is that there's a famine in Canaan, and they go to Egypt and they survive. They get food in Canaan, Sarah and Abram. They live in Canaan. And then, they, and then they come out with great riches. Very interesting. And so this is the very first uh, time we're encountering Egypt. Uh, this is our introduction to Egypt. This is our introduction to Pharaoh. And, uh, and as uh, we may know, that uh, at the very end of the story, there's a great blessing that comes upon Egypt, right? In Isaiah, uh, in the 19th chapter, there it says God will, uh, will strike Egypt but heal Egypt. Strike Egypt, but heal Egypt, right? And of course, uh, that is pro probably thinking primarily of using the, uh, the, um, the slavery, you know, the Passover story, uh, as uh, when he says, strike Egypt, but heal Egypt. But we see it here as well. Uh, uh, God strikes Egypt with plagues. You cannot help but think of the Passover story when you read that, you, you know? Uh, and so quite clearly, God is, we see this uh, picture of God protecting the people, God being faithful to his people. And, and so Abram is starting out. Abraham uh, uses a very much conventional wisdom, uh, but God saves the day. You know, uh, that, this is the story in a way, in a way, those 10 verses are a paradigm of the entire history of the Jewish people to this day, you know? Uh, using a, a, a conventional wisdom to uh, make our way through the nations and entering nations, some at the beginning are very benef are, are, uh, have great, give great benefits, but after a while, it turns to curses, uh, and, uh, and then there's expulsion, the murder, extermination, and all that, and go, go somewhere else, go somewhere else. 
And uh, that is uh, indeed, uh, you know, the, the history. God saves the day. God is faithful to his covenant promises. Think about when the Jewish people uh, went into the Babylonian captivity. Uh, I won't take the time, but you can read in 2 Kings great passages about why the people went into captivity. It wasn't because, I, you know, uh, I want to send you to uh, Babylon. It's kind of a nice place, you know, and make a life for yourselves and bless the people that are there. Now, Jeremiah says that, but the reason they're going is because of sin, is because of breaking the covenant, is, is because of false worship, uh, is because of idolatry and immorality, uh, you know, uh, and unethical behavior. Boy, you know, if I was God, I'd be breaking this covenant with these people and finding somebody else maybe to start over with. You know, everybody makes a mistake and... You know, it just, I thought it was going to work out, but it isn't working out, right? And it really was not working out. And so the entire nation is sent into exile, right? Ten of the tribes are scattered abroad by the Assyrians, and two of the tribes are taken to Babylon. And it was never going to be the same to this day after that. And so even while the Jewish people are in Babylon... And even while they're in, in uh, you know, all over, you know, once the Assyrians take them, they're all over the place, God still remains faithful to that covenant. Even if on the surface, even if it doesn't look like he is. Because let's face it, we view everything through theological eyes, not so much historical eyes. And, and so imagine being just a person living in the Middle East I, you know, around the year uh, 600 uh, BC or BCE, uh, and that was the time just before, you know, the, uh, the temple is destroyed, but the northern kingdom is already gone, and you have puppet kings uh, and governors uh, in uh, Jerusalem, uh, and it, it seems like all is lost, you know? Uh, where is God? Where is God? Do you remember in the book of Jeremiah in the seventh chapter, the people are, uh, Jeremiah is mimicking the people. He's mimicking them saying, oh, that you say the temple, the temple, the temple. And what he means by that, it's in the seventh chapter of Jeremiah, the temple, the temple, the temple, meaning that, that the people are saying, what can ever happen to us? We're the chosen people for crying out loud. And we have the temple. God would never destroy his own temple. God would never allow that to happen. And there it happens. Can you imagine what that does to somebody's faith? Right? But we view it all from, like, we get all the, uh, the commentary. It's like watching a, uh, you know, watching a football game and we're listening to the analyst the whole time explain what's going on to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what's happening. Right? And so in the scriptures, we have the commentary. We have the understanding of, uh, we, we see it from, from the point of view of the heavenlies, one might say, you know. Uh, uh, and God is showing here that he is just, uh, but, he, but he is faithful the whole time. Faith, he's just to his word. He is true to his word, right? But he's faithful to Israel the whole time. Now, then 70 years later, they come back. It's a much smaller situation, much smaller group of people. They build a temple that is nowhere, in no way that can be compared to Solomon's uh, temple. The majority of Jewish people, think about this. This is something you have to think about and swallow. Ready? 
that from the time of the Babylonian captivity to uh, October the 14th of 2017, the majority of Jewish people have lived outside of the land of Israel. From that time until this very day, okay, the majority of Jewish people have lived outside of the land of, uh, of Israel. Now, what do we see? Certainly, uh, we see in recent history, I mean, really recent history, over the last hundred years plus, hundred years plus, large, larger numbers of Jewish people are returning to the land. There's always been Jewish people in the land. You know, even in the Middle Ages, you had conclaves of Jewish people in, in the land. Maimonides lived in the land for a while, uh, and his contemporaries, some of his contemporaries, lived in the land for, for a while, okay? Uh, but we had this great aliyah, this great return, you know, beginning in the late, eight, the Zionism, basically, uh, beginning in the late 1800s and the founding of the modern state of Israel, and, you know, and what we have today. Certainly, God remains faithful in the midst of all of it. Now, you know, uh, our people have been uh, less than perfect, uh, and what an understatement that is. Think about it. First of all, uh, as a people, we are still in this state of, of, of having Yeshua in exile, you know, then we're in exile, you know, that uh, we're still, you know, uh, the, the New Covenant reading for today was from uh, John chapter 1, he came unto his own and his own received him not, generally speaking, that is still the case, yet God remains faithful, God remains faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their physical descendants, the Jewish people. Very important. When Yeshua came, he came at a time of great ungodliness. Just read Jewish history at the time. Wow. It wasn't very good. But yet that's when Yeshua came. He didn't come when the people had had, had some great revival. you know. And now, now they're worthy. Now the Messiah can come. There was not this great repentance. Right? You had, in a way, the opposite, where you had a remnant who came to, uh, came to uh, uh, embrace Yeshua, came to believe in Yeshua, just like it had always been. And isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 11? Right? Has God forsaken his people? May it never be! For I too am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He's speaking about his physical, who he is. You know, uh, you know I'm exhibit A. God has not forsaken his people. Right? And then he goes on to say that it's just the way it's always been. Don't you remember Elijah? When Elijah has this great, remember Elijah's great moment, right? With the 450 priests and all that, you know, and, right? They were, they were all Israelites, by the way. You know, they were, that's how bad it was. All right? Uh, and then he has this victory, and, uh, and then he's depressed. And he says, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who is, is holding strong to you, you know? And then, then God, he says, get some sleep, eat something, right? And then God tells him, no, there are 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Can you imagine how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands in the millions were bowing their knee to Baal? Only 7,000. We usually look at it the other way. Okay, there were 7,000. That's like hardly anybody. But that is how you define, that's, look up the word remnant in the dictionary, and that's what you'll find, a small group within a larger group. 
And so God is faithful, not, in the, not, not because the people are obedient. He's faithful because of the promise that he makes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he always has a remnant. He always has a remnant. See? And that demonstrates that, uh, indeed, that faithfulness, uh, that faithfulness to God. So what we learn is, is that God is faithful and still remains so. Now, it's interesting that when uh, you read, uh, for example, uh, I'm just going to read a few verses uh, very quickly here from the Brit Chadashah about how Yeshua demonstrates the faithfulness of God. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord. Okay? God is faithful in sending the Messiah. In the very same book in chapter 10, in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 13, this becomes more, much more personal. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. So no matter what situation we may find ourselves in, God is faithful. God is faithful. And so you know, this, is actually, this says a lot more than about our temptations, whatever we deal with. But it's whatever circumstance we may be in, God is never absent. And he is always faithful, and he is always ready to redeem, and he is always ready to deliver. The question is not, where is God? The question is, where are we? Right? God remains faithful. Okay? In uh, 1 Thessalonians, another place, in chapter 5, in verse 24, faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Even in our darkest hour, God remains faithful. Okay. In uh, Romans, um, in Romans chapter 15, in verse 8, he says this, For I say the Messiah has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Messiah has, has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jewish remnant, on behalf of, the, of God to confirm the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeshua confirms the, uh, the promises. The presence of Yeshua confirms the promises of God. And so, that is why, uh, that is why uh, we, uh, uh, we are able today to look at a passage like we see in uh, Genesis chapter, 13, chapter 12 uh, and be able to say, yes, indeed, God is, God is faithful. And so, you know, uh, we've been talking about that word faithful, and I'll just say this, that, uh, you know, when, uh, what does that word mean? It means uh, uh, trustworthy, dependable, uh, and one in whom we can place our lot. Trustworthy, steadfast, that's what it means. 
And, uh, and so it is in our own lives that we as disciples of Messiah, we're somewhere on the continuum like Abraham was on the continuum somewhere, right? At the beginning. And while he may have messed up, God was faithful. And so uh, let's go to the Lord. God. Let's, go, let's pray and we'll be done. And may we be able to experience his faithfulness in our lives. Lord, thank you, God for uh, this uh, opportunity of recognizing that, Lord, and uh, God, just as you were faithful to Abraham and then Isaac and to Jacob, Lord, uh, you were faithful in sending Messiah Yeshua, Lord, and uh, thank you, God, that you remain faithful, which means that you are indeed uh, returning. And Lord, we look forward to that day. And although we live in a world that... Many may wonder, where is God? Is God at work? We must always remember that God is faithful. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we live by faith and not by sight. We have a tent that we live in, a flimsy tent, but we're looking forward to that building from God. Yes, we ourselves groan, even with the first fruits of the Spirit, but we look forward to that day of the redemption of our body. Lord, I pray for all of us here who may be undergoing great difficulty. We may be in a desert of, of issues in our lives. Lord, may we just remember, Lord, that when we think about Yeshua, that the Messiah has come, His Ruach, His Spirit dwells within us. Yes, indeed, God is faithful. And He is indeed a God of deliverance. And we look forward to that day of the deliverance of ourselves and our world, Lord. And we thank you, God, for your trustworthiness. And we pray in Messiah's name.